like I don't know. Maybe he's too long. I I remember when Matt Miazga had a 77 rating and was in uh, Chelsea's reserves um, in like FIFA 18. (laughs) (laughs) When he went to Chelsea, he was one of the like, the U.S. hasn't really become ubiquitous at that point. Like the Pulisic, the Reinas, the Leeds kids. And I feel like he was one of a group of about four people who was like, we really need one of these guys to pop off. Yeah, he was like closer to what people perceive Alexi Lawless could be for the United States than we had in a long minute. I mean, and now he plays for FC Cincinnati and is probably not going near the U.S. national team again. Yes. Well, welcome to the Just for Kicks podcast. You'll be listening to us right on the heels of a disappointing exit in the Gold Cup in penalties to Panama after a, I'll call it heroic. Heroic, gritty comeback in extra time to equalize after putting ourselves in the position against Panama to fall behind in extra time just minutes prior. Unfortunately, this penalty shootout we could not escape from. And just like the one against Canada, we probably, all things considered, did not deserve to be in that position in the first place. We'll get into that. We'll get into the Women's World Cup, which we're very excited to preview. We'll talk about the latest summer transfer news before giving you more MLS picks and preview of this weekend's action. But before that, uh, I would ask you (laughs) what the best thing you saw this last week is, but I'm just a little raw right now after what I just witnessed in terms of, you know, maybe it's muscle confusion. Maybe it's thinking we're further along than we are, but the U.S. soccer fan in me wants to win the Gold Cup. I know that we just won the Nations League. I know that we did. I know that's considered the premier tournament. I know that our A-team played that tournament and passed the test with flying colors. But here we are, and hindsight's twenty twenty. But what were we doing fielding this side if these were the results, if this is how we were going to play I mean, I don't know. I mean, we had Matt Turner in goal. I mean, that's great. Kudos to him for, you know, I mean, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have gotten past Canada if it wasn't for Matt Turner. Let's just put it frank. Um, what are we doing, man? What, what was the thinking from the USSF? I can only point to arrogance. Is it intrinsically more complicated than that? Nope. That's what it feels like to me. Um, I understand the tip top, not playing the players that need to go to preseason with their European teams, the pool of six, the Reinas, et cetera. But it does seem to be a pretty arrogant approach to send your C team in to what is arguably the premier tournament in your region. And to then have that kind of a showing is, it, there's a lot of egg on the face right now. Um, it was really lackluster, really embarrassing. Um, I think several people need some introspection and there were, nobody really covered themselves in glory in this tournament. No. The U.S. very much needs to take a step back, be a little bit more realistic and understand that we're not at the point where we can be the ones scoffing at the gold cup. Um, We're not there yet. No, I mean, credit where it's due. Um, Guys like Matt Turner were largely admirable. um, If not a little extra. I mean, we're nowhere near that shootout with Panama. If Matt Turner's not there. No, exactly. And, you know, obviously, obviously hats off to the guy who, might still bag the golden boot from the gold cup, you know, Jesus Ferreira, who, you know, <laughs> it was route one uh, soccer, but uh, Jordan Morris's header, 
that ball into the box at the end of the first half of extra time. Jordan Morris put it perfectly. Ferreira stopped his run and with very, very tired legs, put it up or 90. Um, but again, we shouldn't have been in that position. We shouldn't have been in the position we were in against Canada. And not only does the arrogance in terms of who we fielded really bug me, but we have to be accountable as the United States for some questionable sportsmanship, you know, as well in these matches. And if the ongoing narrative from fans of the U.S. men's national team, is it going to be we play the game, everybody else wastes time, everybody else is about gamesmanship, then we can't be behaving the way we're behaving in crucial moments of these matches. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I have to call out Matt Miazga. That it's just, it's just inexplicable. And I, I, I don't, there's really not a place for it. Um, Steve, I know that you, you turned your head uh, during that moment, but standing in the penalty box and, you know, really bothering the ensuing penalty taker, just not a good look. And it's just, it just adds to the egg on the face. I'm bummed out by it, and it seems like us shelling Mexico in the Gold Cup was six moons ago. Does it not? Yeah. Um, it, it feels like a long time and a different universe, honestly. So, obviously, we can use this as motivation. Obviously, there are a lot of silver linings in regards to knowing people that we probably don't want to be wearing a U.S. men's national team shirt ever again, if not for a hot minute. But what is your lasting lesson and what was your biggest takeaway from this tournament um, as B.J. Callahan exits after one tremendously successful tournament, another disappointing tournament that I wouldn't really attribute to him being a disappointing tournament necessarily? You know, you can't really foresee the situation at hand when you're using your substitutes and running out of substitutes. We ironically lost to a team that had lost an extra time. Um, in the group stages twice because they had injuries when they were out of substitutes. Um, but what really do you make of this as a data point? I mean, we were just talking about how deep we are. We were just talking about how excited we were to watch the team that played in the Nations League. This is a wholly different experience, and it was a wholly different group of guys. But it's who the United States sent to the Gold Cup, period. My hope is that it's a reality check both in the sense that we need to be trying to compete in the Gold Cup much more intently and looking to dominate the region before we get rest on our laurels, so to speak, um, in any of these competitions. And the alternative to that is a lot of these guys, unfortunately, prove that they're not up to the level we need them to be for 2024 and 2026. And if that's the case, what is the use of playing them at all? Put in someone younger that you know has a future with the team. Put in the substitutes from the A team. Give people minutes who you know will be contributing and need reps together and in those kind of environments, etc. Um, there are a lot of people that played this tournament I don't expect to see in a U.S. national team shirt again. Maybe three or four of them have a role in a upcoming camp. That's pretty much the list. I'm excluding Matt Turner. Obviously, he's locked and loaded. But um, the biggest takeaway is that we're not at the level to scoff at the Gold Cup, and we need to look in the mirror and start to take these things a little bit more seriously if we want to be taken seriously on the world stage. Yeah, and you just have to be more mindful of the roster that you put together. I mean, obviously, Jordan Morris has had two torn ACLs. Obviously, he's not going to be you know, starting for us in four years. However, the way he contributed, the way that he 
admirably thought through, had a great penalty at the end. You know, that's a guy that I can see being on a secondary side. But if you're going to put somebody who doesn't really have much more developmental room in this side, and they're not going to contribute, I'm just curious why the hell they're there. What's the point? Yeah. I mean, this one's going to sting. And, you know, even with Turner's heroics, we probably should have lost to Canada. But, you know, we won the Nations League and good for Panama. They they were the better side today. Games aren't played on paper. And I'm not sure this would have been a radically different outcome if this game was played 10 times. Would you? No, nothing in the last couple of games has indicated that we have that ceiling we hoped we had. Um, I wouldn't like our chances against Panama much more than a coin flip at this point. Yeah, and I think it just goes back to that arrogance. I mean, this U.S. men's national team, you know, it is, you know, (laughs) what's the old adage? You know, hope is simultaneously our greatest strength and our greatest weakness. I think we just thought because we were the United States and the United States are soaring that we kind of had the intangibles to figure things out. But we weren't greater than the sum of our parts. And I'm and these group of guys didn't have the bunker mentality that we saw from the group of guys in the Nations League, yep. in the World Cup, who were going to be leading us on forward. There's an ocean between that group of players. Um a much larger ocean than I expected. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we don't need to name names, but before we get off topic, Turner aside, obviously, how many of these guys really can assimilate into our A-team? I mean, obviously Ferreira. I said I wouldn't name names, but, <laughs> you know, only a handful. I wouldn't expect any of them to get minutes. If we needed to go win a World Cup knockout game today, no. Matt Turner is the only person who's getting near the field. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I don't want to get too nag on these guys, but I was really disappointed in the majority of performances. Uh, yeah, I was too. Um, well, let's move on to something that's yeah, let's 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 talk about a positive U.S. national team experience that's upcoming. <laughs> you know, in the first first episode of this podcast, when we were talking to Frank Four, um, he warned us about this World Cup. He said the United States women's national team is not above and beyond everyone else anymore. In that tournament, you know, we were dealing with France, who's hyper-athletic. We were dealing with, you know, a burgeoning Germany side. We were dealing with a Spain side that, you know, had a collection of great individuals, but wasn't necessarily arriving yet. It seems like all these sides are cresting right now, save for maybe France, but France has the pedigree. I mean, I could see Spain winning this, I could see Germany winning this, and I especially could see England winning this tournament, um, especially as the United States is in a period of transition between the old guard and the new guard, and we all know what is viable to happen when that changing the guard takes place. It's difficult in the dressing room. You know, right now, what are our odds plus 250 uh, to win the tournament? Something like that. I think that's fair. I think it's fair. I think it's fair, but, uh, you know, I do think that if the U.S. women do not pull this off, it's not going to be an upset. I won't be shocked. I mean, maybe if somebody outside of the teams I just mentioned wins it. But are we not entering a new era where European women are quickly, quickly nipping on our tails? Yeah, the European game's taken a giant leap over the last several years, uh, club and international 
when the women's World Cups would roll around, it did always kind of feel like a few teams were pretty congealed at the top, and we were kind of waiting for that semifinal battle to see the top teams match up. But it feels much more wide open. Um, it feels like that peloton of potential winners is much larger than ever, and the depth of competition and talent is like exponential versus 2019 and certainly what was going on in the aughts. Um, it's extremely exciting. I think all of that combines to plus the success of the women's super league and European uh, championship really combines to make this by far the most anticipated um, women's world cup globally. Um, it, it really just kind of feels like it's like, you know, a graph where it's just shooting straight up at this point. Yeah. And I mean, you look at the star power from players who are not American, you know, on the global stage. I mean, obviously, you got Alexia Patelius, our reigning Ballon d'Or winner. Two-time. Yeah, two-time reigning Ballon d'Or winner, who, despite the women's game, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but given that it's more technical, I believe they rely on their 11 and being greater than some of their parts, probably more so than the men's game. But still, between Patelius, who plays at Barcelona, and her Barcelona teammate, uh, Aitana Bonmati, those are two players who I don't think the United States has anybody of that quality. I'm sorry. Or at least has been in form consistently over the last year, two years. Um, then obviously your Arsenal ladies have, you know, Beth Mead and Sam Kerr, Australian phenomenon who plays for Chelsea. They're all everywhere. Isn't she on the cover of FIFA? Um... This isn't a United States-dominated, you know, cultural phenomenon anymore. There is a lot of individual, a lot of team talent. I mean, the club game. Well, let me back up. Would you attribute this rise in Spain, in Germany, in France, in England to a renewed interest or maybe for the first time funding for women's teams in Europe that we really haven't seen in a very long time. I mean, you look at sides like Lyon, you look at sides like Wolfsburg. I mean, God, they're just stout. Yeah, I think there's uh, several factors that go into it. It's European countries taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, Germany was well ahead in this category. They were dominating the Women's European Championships for a while. Their club teams were dominating the Champions League for a while, but Spain... France, especially Lyon, and England now with the Women's Super League have all caught up. Um, there's obviously been a huge jump in investment. These clubs are taking it very seriously, and we're talking about clubs, Barcelona, Manchester United, Chelsea, Lyon, PSG, Wolfsburg, who know about a thing or two about soccer. Um, give them the resources and the time and the want to to develop women's players and teams. These are people who have been building clubs and teams for decades, if not a century at this point. They know exactly what they're doing. And now the women's game has those kind of resources and that kind of competence and intelligence to go along with it. And it's just kind of a match made in heaven to grow the game. Whereas before, um, China was one of the better teams. Mm -hmm. The United States was one of the better teams. And... You know, that had several different factors, but the ability for the European teams to kind of join the fray on the national and the international stage is really sorry, that's not quite fair. Germany was having a great run. Um, Norway and the Scandinavian countries were great, but there does seem to be a much larger 
contingency of really, really solid European um, competition. Yeah. I found out recently, though, like, I, I don't know how much of this contributes. It, finally, they're taking it seriously in these countries, obviously. But I found it recently, like, until the 70s, women weren't allowed to play football by the FA in England. And that, like, obviously is way more... Like, there's several countries playing in this tournament who, like, the legality or the barrier of women playing soccer in their countries is, like, relatively new. So, honestly, it feels like we're going light speed if you consider that kind of mess. Um, but I think it's important to watch the game grow like this and to highlight, like, what could happen if we, you know, I don't know, let women play football in these countries. Um, it's very exciting. Yeah, what a novel idea. Let women in the country that invented the sport play the sport. And see what happens. Yeah, I was shocked to learn that, obviously. Yeah, I, I don't want to be too high and mighty as, you know, an American, you know, given everything. <laughs> but um, that is shocking. And I kind of feel like this is England's tournament to lose as much as anyone not named the United States. Um, if I had to pick somebody that was not the United States, I would go with England. I mean, the talent on that side is just, just staggering. I mean, Lucy Bronze, who is now at Barcelona, finished top 10 in Blondor voting when she was at City. An amazing defender. You know, they've also got Millie Bright, also at Chelsea. Uh, this defense is very, very, very stout. And I think that that's going to be something that a lot of sides are going to have a very difficult time overcoming, breaking down, if they don't have the necessary creative pieces. And that brings me to the United States because we have Megan Rapinoe as the spiritual leader of this team. You know, she's been a transcendent figure, a mouthpiece for women's advocacy, has allowed the U.S. women's national team to transcend the sport in a lot of ways that, you know, we love, we support. But, you know, she is on her last leg. And she always was that Swiss Army knife that we needed, you know, to get us opportunities, to create chances, to add a certain spark, to break people down when we weren't able to do it with the brute force that the United States of America typically has, the sheer physicality and the sheer skill. I mean, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, I mean, my God. But, I mean, who is going to break down these defenses? I mean, Katerina Macario... We would point to her, you know, amazing playmaker, can play wide, can play through the middle, but she's hurt as well. Enter one Alex Morgan. Um, you know, we still have the favorite for the golden boot. Alex Morgan certainly has a little bit more wear on the tires, so to speak, but she is just as capable as ever. Maybe a little bit different style of play. She should just run right through everybody, but... Um, she's insanely intelligent. So she is insanely intelligent. I'm sure she can sort that out. But, you know, the next in line, the successor to be the star is Sophie Smith. And I expect her to probably be starting on the wing. Uh, Rapino will probably be coming in as like a little closer of uh, some sort. But, yeah, Sophie Smith's the one to pick up the torch for the U.S. national team. And I think a lot of people fully expect this to be her breakout party. Um she was the women's player of the year last year, I believe, in the domestic league and is more than capable of being that dynamo in attack. Yeah. Well, you know, it was Rose Lavelle four years ago. What do you think we can expect from her this time? Because um, she's only gotten better. Yeah, she's coming back from an injury. Um, I 
think there's whispers she might not start against Vietnam on Friday. She tries to get back to full strength. Um, She's obviously an incredibly important player for us and one of the most creative players in the team. Um, I certainly hope to see her at full strength. I think even 80 to 90% of Roosevelt is good. But, you know, the expectation for the U.S. national team is to go all the way and to win it. And we probably need her to be at or near her best to do that. Um, She's an incredibly pivotal player in the squad. She's an incredibly pivotal player in the squad. And another player that has been getting a lot of buzz is Trinity Rodman from the Washington Spirit. Her star is rising quickly. Do you think she will be able to contribute on this level, you know, in the semis, should we make it to the semis, you know, in the final? um, How do you see her fitting into the larger narrative of this tournament from the U.S. women's national team's perspective? Similar to Sophie Smith, the U.S. is just a talent factory. There's always someone else ready to go. And I think that uh, Rapino, Morgan, Julie Ertz, or uh, Alyssa Nair as well, exactly the kind of people you want in the camp to kind of Compliment that lack of experience our extremely talented young players have. Um, talent is certainly not the issue for the United States team. I don't think experience is either. It's, but it will be interesting to see if these relative newcomers can uh, perform on this stage because the Olympics were a little bit disappointing. Um, I don't know how many of those players are going to be participating. But, um, you know, we're favorites, deservedly so. But I, I do think there's several people with something to prove. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I'm looking at the odds, and I certainly don't want to bet against the United States. But Oh, I'm taking the U.S. We're going all the way. I think they are. I think they are. But I do think that there is some value maybe in Spain at plus 700, maybe Germany plus 650. You know, again, when we have changing of guards, when we have people filling in for the mainstays who are injured, um, sometimes adversity hits and you're looking around the field – And it's not the players you're familiar with. And when the other 11 are locked in with the people that they have gone to war with for years, I don't know. I just don't believe the United States is seven light years better than Germany, Spain, or France. Definitely not England. No, totally agree. It's a new era. And if we struggle, I I hope that the U.S. soccer faithful can appreciate the increased parity that we're going to be witnessing. They can get used to it. And if this is not a result that we want, I hope that we are not down on the U.S. women's national team. Obviously, anything short of winning the tournament is going to be considered at some capacity a failure. But Well, I mean, they've set a pretty outrageous standard. Like, they're victims of their own excellence. They're, yeah. They've won as many titles as the rest of the world combined. They're going for a three-peat. They would be the first men's or women's team to do that. Yeah. Um, it would be disappointing if they don't win the title, especially as favorites. But at the same time, they're more formidable competitors this go around than there ever have been before. And all of those teams have a lot of strength and depth. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to realize that if we look at this trend line, we look at where we are right now as an inflection point, and we look at where we're going to be in four years, we're just not going to be able to be a fan base that is disappointed if we don't win this tournament every year. If we get to the semis, I'll be able to sleep at night. I'm sorry. Moving forward, that's kind of the way it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, you just named three teams. There's probably another France, um, Sweden, or Netherlands, maybe. Australia. If we're not on our – Australia included. If 
the U.S. isn't on their A game are very, very susceptible to these teams on their A game. And yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you can't be expected to perform at the tip top all the time, but it is nearing the point where a semifinal is considered a success. But at the same time, <laughs> we're the favorites and we have shown an unmatched ability to navigate these tournaments. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm just being very hopeful. I'm absolutely taking the United States at plus 250. I'm not even considering anything else, despite some of the mentioned frailties. Like, let's go. This, For all the talk about the B team earlier, this is unequivocally the U.S. A team. Oh, absolutely. This is our shining star. <laughs> it is. And now the competition is stiffer, and we have a massive target on our back, and I really hope in this period of transition, this wealth of talent can coalesce and keep this train running for a historic three-peat. Well, we're going to keep it rolling with stateside action at the end of the pod when we talk about the MLS, but let's take a brief break because it wouldn't be a summertime just for kicks without some transfer chatter. And I'm not going to bury the lead, even though it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but my God... Did Kylian Mbappe just become favored minus 250 to head to Real Madrid this summer? Yes, his odds are ever expanding in the favor of Real Madrid over the last couple of weeks. I think several days ago, PSG basically told him, sign the contract or we're going to find a club for you. And then Mbappe went on some humanitarian mission to Cameroon and basically ignored them. <laughs> and then... I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh two days, that. Like... No, I, we said it last week. The more they say and the more he keeps the mouth shut, the more he's just calling their bluff and there's nothing they can do. And so a few days I, after that— I'm very, very glad he went on the humanitarian mission to Cameroon. I hope this is not a PR play regardless. I'm glad that it happened. But, yeah, he, it, it, it's just evidence he has all the cards. And then a few days after that statement by PSG, there's a report of them saying they're going to use all of the options in their power— to ruin his life. And it's like, oh, man, you've completely lost the plot. <laughs> like, they're going insane. <laughs> it's Mbappe is just completely twisting them into a pretzel. And, you know, every day that passes, his position grows stronger. And it's one of the more fascinating um, power struggles I've seen because I thought PSG was like all-powerful, almighty. And strangely, he seems to have them over a barrel. It just makes me so sad because, you know, if they— Oh, yeah, it makes me so depressed. If poor little PSG, you know, had the resources to pair him with talent that would have kept him there, they wouldn't have been in this position. But, you know, now they're going to have to sell to big old bad Real Madrid— Oh, oh, oh wait. Um— How do you botch this experiment this badly? How? How do you botch the PSG, Mbappe, Neymar, Messi, Verratti, Ramos? Like, and we'll get to Lucas Hernandez coming in. Does he want to go? I mean, he's French too. Does he want to be on the team that Kylian Mbappe is not a part of? Oh, he's extremely uh, French. How do you botch this project so poorly. I remember you described their last Champions League performance as the equivalent of tripping over themselves while throwing $100 bills in the air and setting them on fire. Messi left after people booed him and chanted Cristiano Ronaldo's name. 
Neymar seems to be the only one left standing from that trio. And he's just been laughing all the way to the bank. He hasn't played in a meaningful match there. No, he was on he was literally on the beach whenever they won their cup ties or cup title. So their best players don't want to be there. I'm surprised anyone else does. I know they offer outrageous wages, but to your previous point, Lucas Hernandez is going there and he is extremely French, so French so that he is from Marseille. I believe his dad might have played for Marseille. And as soon as he signed, the PSG Ultras told him they were going to make his life hell because he is not a true Parisian. And it's just like, oh, my God, dude, they cannot get one right. You know, the PSG Ultras are a little crazy in their own right, but I, I, it's it's all a calamity. So, so, so who begots who? The PSG Ultras having a sense of entitlement because of the talent and the ownership? Or have the PSG Ultras always been? The PSG Ultras. I think if you ask the PSG Ultras, they wish uh, Cutter would sell the team and all these superstars would leave and they would get people who actually cared and played for the club. Well, if you ask me, that's how I feel. <laughs> yeah, it's – I think it's a matter of passion at this point and they don't feel like – they feel like they have a bunch of mercenaries and the I, – I think they'd rather languish in league oh, with people who care. Um, about the club than be winning all these league on titles and being somehow still a complete embarrassment. Yeah, it's um, and they're barely winning the titles too. I mean, it's just, <laughs> and they're not winning all the cups. And they're not entertaining. They have these rosters and they're not entertaining. It's incredibly disjointed, and it's really, really tragic that the last European destination that Lionel Messi was playing, um. And it's a real bummer. This is how Kylian Mbappe's time seems to be coming to an end there. Um, we'll talk about if, when he goes to Real Madrid, um, how he slots in there. Oh, I've got one for you. Okay, what you got for me? Who says no? Rashford and $100 million for Mbappe. Well, I mean, uh, United says no because they have no leverage. Fair enough. I mean, I don't know. I mean, um, I think Mbappe wants to go to Madrid, and he can get himself to Madrid at this point. Can he not? Oh, that's the answer. If that offer, if that swap were to be offered, Mbappe would say no. Um, yeah, no, I I think so, and he might have to wait uh, till January to make that agreement. But he can go to Madrid if he wants to for sure. He's not under contract in ten months. Yeah, but I do think that he does hold all the cards here. I mean, the second he agrees with wages in principle with Real Madrid, then the clock just starts ticking that much faster, right? I mean, the PSG Chiefs are just looking at it. And Real's not in a hurry, are they? No, I think they'll be fine. I think they'll be fine, too, because they got options. The only way um, uh, Real Madrid gets hurried in this situation is if other teams start lobbying bids for him, um, which... Again, we've talked about his price. I don't see many teams who would be willing to do that. I just – I don't see Mbappe at this point wearing any kit other than the Real Madrid kit, whether it's next season or the season after. But the next meaningful football he plays will be with Real Madrid. You know, it, it really, really would take an extraordinary um, pitch from a manager or, you know, an offer or something of that nature – to go into anywhere else. I mean, you know, I talked about Liverpool, but they don't have Champions League football. Manchester United, you know, I don't know that Mbappe wants to play in England. 
especially in the shadow of Man City at Man United. Um, I think he's just always kind of wanted to be a Galactico. And once he's this close, it's going to be really hard to convince him otherwise, right? Yeah, that that's pretty much where I stand on it. So moving along in terms of odds that are shifting, but things that are not happening. So we're just at, at the end of the day speculating wildly, something we swear never to do. Harry Kane's odds of staying at Spurs continue to dwindle and him going to Bayern Munich becomes increasingly more and more likely. And you have to keep in mind that when somebody is minus 120 to play where they're contractually obligated to play the next season and where they want them to play, that's because (laughs) that's why that line is where it is. But yeah, I mean, would you not agree, though? I mean, whenever you see a line that, you know, that's, you know, somebody's 130 to stay or 120 or even odds to stay at the club that they're contractually obligated to play for the next year, we know how this sport works, man. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of smoke here. Um, Bayern lobbied a $80 million bid, I think. And I'm certain Bayern's not wasting their time submitting bids for someone they don't think will join their team. Um, and then allegedly Spurs offered him 400,000 um, pounds a week. So the numbers are growing and growing. Um, the odds get tighter and tighter. And again, there's a lot of smoke here. It very much feels like this is a saga that's going to wear on. I think it's also important to note that Bayern Munich, their ownership is so unique that whenever we see them lodge a bid of that size – we know they're not just pissing in the wind. No, and I, I think we Harry Kane would get into most teams in the world. He's one of the best strikers and forwards of his era and of all time and certainly Premier League. But even still, he's exactly the kind of player that Bayern Munich wants and needs to really compete at the top, top level right now. Um, they seem a little bit desperate to get him. I completely understand why. And, of course, the story with him is that he's very close to all of these records. He His legacy is totally fine, in my opinion. He's oh, absolutely. one of the most fantastic players to watch of all time. He's skilled. He has everything in the bag. But the idea of going to win a trophy for the first time is almost a lock at Bayern Munich versus the idea of being a lifetime Spurs player or at least running out his contract and maybe seeing what they can get with this project. But there's certainly no guarantee of silverware at Spurs, and he's just far enough away from that Alan Shearer record that it makes you wonder if it's time to cut bait. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point... I mean, what would you do? Well, I mean, at this point, after proving that I'm loyal enough to the fan base to not go to Manchester United, to not go to Manchester City, and maybe he does. Maybe things change and he does. I don't think he's going to Manchester City at this point. Um at this point, I don't think he's going to Manchester United. Um, but I also think that Tottenham wouldn't sell him to either of those clubs for anything short of a ridiculous amount of money that they won't offer. Um, going all the way back to the Luka Modric saga, back when these numbers weren't so eye-watering, you know, Chelsea bid £40 million for a guy who said, I don't want to play here anymore. They didn't respond, and they sold him to Real Madrid for 10 million pounds less the next transfer window. I think Daniel Levy knows what selling two sides who are above him in the table will do to the brand. I think Harry Kane knows 
it's a bridge too far to expect that. And I think it's I think it's Bayern Munich or bust. You agree? Certainly feels that way, mostly because Dan Levy's involved. Um, but he does have the leverage of after the season he can leave for free and pick his spot. So it'll be interesting to see how this kind of how this pans out. Um, I uh, totally agree on the Levy assessment. He knows what it means for recruiting and optics to sell to a team above him in England. I highly doubt he does that. But I don't know. I kind of personally would love to see Harry Kane in that Bayern Munich team and don't shoot me but I feel like winning a title is a little bit cooler than being the Premier League all-time scorer when you've never won a title before I think it's got to be right I mean like you immediately become a Champions League contender he's a hundred percent at that level and also like it's the Premier League record I think Alan Shearer had some other first division goals before the transition and it's just kind of like it, it all feels a little bit made up in a weird way. I know it's a record. It's important. But like when having a realistic shot at the Champions League trumps that several times over if you're serious. Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's just call a spade a spade. If Harry Kane goes to Bayern Munich, I would say there's a 51% chance that Bayern Munich wins the Champions League in the next five years. One time. Just once. I'm also going a bit crazy here, but there's also the potential that he stays for one more season, scores 30 goals, leaves for a couple seasons, and then comes back for one like 37-year-old 15-goal season to break the record. I mean, he could do a he could do the Henri, but do make a full season out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but going back to the title theme, I know England are an elite side now. I know that England has made it very, very far in the World Cup under Harry Kane. I know they made it to the final Euros. Sorry, not under Harry Kane, under Euro Southgate with Harry Kane as their primary goal scorer. But it still feels like a second tier international side because they don't have that World Cup victory outside of when they hosted. They don't have that Euro victory. And I think that also has to weigh on a guy who idolizes Tom Brady who literally will not shut up about how much he loves Tom Brady. The guy wants to win titles. It's not rocket science. He ain't winning them at Spurs. Just saying. Oh, sorry. I broke my own rule. I said, I said that we've been too harsh on Spurs lately. Uh, whoops. But am I wrong? There's certainly no historical indication he will be winning trophies at Spurs. Um, whereas Bayern Munich it is about a 95% chance he'll get one in 10 months. Yeah, and listen, Spurs are trending in the absolute right direction, and there always seems to be this odd inertia there where they seem to be on the cusp of something, and then it just falls backwards, and they backslide. And they're in one of those backslides, and Harry Kane's experienced that inertia, that whiplash, what, four, five times in his career at this point? I mean, I still think back to All or Nothing where Jose Mourinho was saying, hey, I know you don't think I should be at Spurs. I know you probably don't think you should be at Spurs anymore, but let's use this as an opportunity. <laughs> How long ago was that? He's still there. And he's still one of, if not the best, true strikers alive. I take Holland on his day. You know, we can describe... Mbappe as, you know, a, you know, complete forward who can, you know, play pretty much anywhere across the front line. But in terms of traditional strikers, you can't really count on anybody ever 
to have the season that Harry Kane just had with no support. And he did it. And I think he's tired. We'll see how much how much longer he remains Tottenham's brave and loyal Harry Kane. What do you think? We shall see. <laughs> you think he's tired? I think he's tired. I think he's tired of holding up the tent by himself. I think he wants somebody else. Um, but let's get in, let's get into some actual tangible action. Um, like we said, Lucas Hernandez to PSG. How do you think that's going to affect Bayern Munich? And how do you think it's going to affect PSG? Bayern Munich's already brought in Kim Min Jae, so they got a ready-made replacement. I don't think they're too worried about it. Um, PSG. Who's better? Let's let's be fair. Who's better? Well, Lucas Hernandez is coming off of the injury too, so um, I, I think Bayern Munich's plenty happy with their scenario. Um, we'll see how he reacts to that in- injury at PSG. They've obviously got a couple other great center backs. Um, he's an extremely capable player, but it'll be interesting to see how they deploy him, I suppose. Yeah, and then moving along, we got David De Gea, who just always seemed to be a freak talent, but sometimes a complete head case, who also, I'm sorry, in this game, probably is not as good with his feet as he needs to be. And they have their eyes squarely on somebody who is taking on their noisy neighbor's prized asset, Erling Haaland. I'm talking about Inter Milan's Andre Onana. When he was standing, what, 20 yards in front of the goal with Erling Haaland harassing him, unfazed? Oh, dude, I think he made it like 45 yards out. He was going crazy out there. I mean, you know what the Manchester United Chiefs at Old Trafford were thinking watching that and thinking about what their keeper was doing in his previous interactions with Erling Haaland. Um, I want to see that. I know people who don't love Manchester United might not be rooting for Andre Onana to go there. But is this the nail in the coffin of what was a career that we thought we thought that David De Gea on his day was a once in a generational talent and he's just gotten the yips at the worst possible time in the biggest possible matches and he doesn't look like a modern keeper anymore. But you're you're the expert. Tell me where I'm talking out of my ass. Yeah, I, I want to make sure before we move on to the future era to give David De Gea credit for his contributions at Man United, won a title very early on in that, um, and but was brought in to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world, take over for Edwin van der Sar, who get well soon, Edwin. Um, and, you know, he made a lot of progress. He was a smaller player um, coming up and a lot of concerns about his physicality, but he adjusted to the Premier League pretty well and became one of the better keepers in the league. But the game has certainly changed, and Eric Ten Hag has certainly brought in a new philosophy, and he does not quite have the rounded skill set to contribute at that kind of level anymore. He's still a fantastic shot stopper. I think that he has amazing reactions and technique, but yeah, his game with his feet just isn't quite good enough. Um, he's scared. he's he rescued them several times this year, but they want a little bit more control. And I'm not sure you can go from one end of the spectrum to the other quite as strongly as going from David De Gea to Andre Onana. Um, he played for Eric Ten Hag at Ajax and is tailor made for the system. And I think that'll be a match made in heaven. I I totally agree. I would love to see Andre Onana in the Premier League. Absolutely. But David De Gea, 
definitely don't want to say he's the greatest Manchester United goalkeeper of all time, but I think he was plenty worth his price um, eventually for Manchester United. Yeah. Had the most clean sheets last year? He had the most clean sheets last year? I'm pretty sure he did. I'm looking this up. Hold on a second. Wow. While you look that up, I'm going to mention two quick items of business um, for the Just for Kicks faithful. Um, I'm pouring one out for Sergey Milinkovic-Savic. Um, he's heading to Al-Halal, and he's not upset about it, I'm sure. But I think he was one of the most underrated players in Europe. I think he and what he was able to do in Syria um, for so long. I always kind of thought he'd end up at Barcelona or somewhere else like that as an engine. Really, really dictating play for an elite side, winning a Champions League, doing something of that nature. Um, but his career didn't wind up that way. And good for him for cashing in on the talent that he has. But I do think it is a bummer that he did not get really the recognition on that next tier that he probably deserved among casual observers of the beautiful game and even even diehards. You think I'm being too wistful about this? <laughs> no, I th- I think Milinkovic Savage is a extremely talented player. I'd always kind of hoped he would make the leap to a more visible team, but he was one of the best midfielders in Serie A and joins a group of players leaving Serie A with Brozovic also going to Saudi Arabia and Tanali going to Newcastle. That really kind of frightens me for that league. They seem to be getting some of their best players poached pretty simply. Um, we just talked about Onana coming from Inter, probably leaving uh, for Manchester United. Napoli's already had their stalwart and defense taken. Um, I, I'm I'm a little bit nervous for the league, to be honest with you. Um, and Milinkovic Vinch Savage is a, a very, very strong coup for the Saudi league. Um, back to David De Gea real quick. He had 17 clean sheets last year, led the league. That was his second Golden Glove. Wow. Yeah. And considering one of his center halves was four feet tall, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, Toro Martinez um, did an amazing job this last season. Um, I think those are very shrewd by, and all credit to Eric Tindock for bringing him in. Um, but lastly, another big move for a United States men's national team player, Brendan Aronson. He's going to Union Berlin. What does this mean for his development? What does this mean for how we're viewed globally? I mean, I understand it's not Bayern Munich. I understand it's not even Dortmund. Um, Brendan Aronson was pretty crucial in our World Cup campaign. And I think this is a great opportunity for him to get cultured and play in a league that a lot of U.S. men's national team stalwarts have grown into themselves in. Totally agree. Um, he's still very young and needs to develop a little bit, but the Leeds thing did not work out last year, mostly in the sense that they got relegated. So he's going to now Union Berlin, and the Bundesliga is a great league for uh, youth to develop in, and they will also be in the Champions League this season. So I would say it's a very much an upgrade for Brendan Aronson and excited to see him on that level. Absolutely. All these moves that are happening are increasing the opportunities for Americans to play in the Champions League. That is something I'm noticing. Um, way up, not this season, but I certainly expect Juventus to be back. Um, Pooley, obviously, and as well as Ricardo Pepe mm-hmm. um, going to PSV. They have to win a qualifier, but they still have a chance. Yeah, that's another big move too. Um, 
Well, that has been our transfer roundup on this edition of the Just for Kicks podcast. When we come back, we'll tell you what we're watching this weekend. Hint, it involves a lot of American action. And we'll be giving you more MLS betting tips so you can be using your Apple Plus subscription wisely and making back the money you're shelling out on it. But it's not that much because it's a great deal. You should check it out. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Just for Kicks podcast, where we have all the best betting tips to help you line your pockets so you can pay for that Apple Plus subscription to your favorite or new favorite league that Lionel Messi will soon be gracing us in. That is Major League Soccer. We're one week away from Messi Day, just saying. We are one week away from Messi Day. And we also have the MLS All-Star Game coming up. And contrary to popular belief, it was not Todd Bowley's idea. But let's get to the picks first. I love FC Cincinnati, number one team in the Eastern Conference, plus 100 at home against Nashville. You know, Nashville's 10 points adrift. They've been playing very well, but Cincinnati is still the class of the Eastern Conference. And if you're getting plus odds at home against anybody, I'm going to take it. I also really like Atlanta at home, minus 105 against Orlando. Atlanta's been inconsistent, but home is a bit of a fortress. They are a talented side. They will piece things together. They'll get that victory here. And LAFC. Call me biased, but I think plus 135 is great value to take them as road favorites, even though, God forbid, you ever take anybody as a road favorite in this league. (laughs) So to recap, that is FC Cincinnati, Plus 100 at home against Nashville SC. Atlanta United, minus 105 at home against Orlando City. And LAFC on the road, plus 135 against Minnesota United. Lock it in, and it shall hit, just like Seattle, plus 230 over Vancouver did to wipe out all the other misgivings that may have come your way via the Just for Kicks podcast. So, Steve, while you eagerly anticipate the start of the Women's World Cup opening match, we do have Cincinnati versus Nashville on Saturday, 7.30 Eastern time. And we also have the MLS All-Star Game coming up, um, where they will be taking on your beloved Arsenal FC. Do they stand a chance? What's going to happen? Why isn't it Chelsea? (laughs) Oh, of course they stand a chance. Um, I hesitate to admit this. I am very excited for this for reasons beyond Arsenal. I kind of love the format and the event. And, you know, Todd Bowley is certainly not my favorite person in the world of football, but I think that idea got a little bit too much hate. Just saying. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Um, You can catch that Wednesday, July 19th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, also on Apple TV. So we got a great slate of weekend action, especially Cincinnati against Nashville, number one versus number three in the Eastern Conference. We got the Women's World Cup coming up. We're kind of reeling from what could have been a very, very exciting final in the Gold Cup, but it's really, really hard to complain because we just didn't do a lot to put ourselves in a position to get there, did we? No, we shot ourselves in the foot, and as we record this, Mexico is beating Jamaica and just making me realize that now Mexico is going to have one over on us. And it's those kind of things that you have to understand. Like they're going to use this as a 
um, marketing tool, something to rally the troops, so to speak. And meanwhile, we are licking our wounds, wondering if any of these guys are going to participate in our next camp. Um, it's not the end of the world. It is a gold cup. I'm not stupid. I understand it. But it, it is really, really disappointing, both the approach and the outcome. It is. And if Mexico is on a win, they'll face Panama this Sunday at 730 on Fox in the Gold Cup final, a match the United States is not used to not being a part of, to put it lightly. Before we go, any brain busters or anything exciting to add to take our mind off the macabre topics we started and ended this podcast with? Yeah, I mean, for all the negativity of the men's team right now, the women's team is the best team in the world at what they do. And I am very excited to watch them kind of get that taste out of my mouth. Um, they're supremely talented and wildly entertaining to watch. But the stat is with David De Gea leaving Manchester United, they are currently without bringing anyone else in, which is certainly possible. This will be the first time in 30 years that Manchester United does not have a Premier League winning player on the roster. What? Just to give you an idea of their dominance. Okay. I, 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 I know you're all in on the Pep argument, but I think that might say something about Sir Alex. Just saying. Just saying. But we don't need to relitigate that right now. Credit where it's due. More than one person could be great. <laughs> My God. Um, wow. Yeah, depending on the words you use for the comparison, great, best, most, whatever, like Sir Alexi Ferguson is in every conversation and topping a lot of them. You're not, listen, Sir Alex Ferguson being brought up is undismissible in any barroom argument in regards to any of those. It's just, if you're dismissing him, it's like it's like dismissing The Sopranos or The Wire from Greatest Shows of All Time. Like, you got to at least listen, if you even if you disagree. Like, be ready. Be ready for your counter-arguments. But, like, <laughs> my God, man. <laughs> my God. Anyways. Well, this has been another edition of the Just for Kicks podcast. You can check us out on Instagram, at the Just for Kicks podcast. We're also on Twitter, at Just for Kicks FC. And we're now up on Reels. Threads. Sorry. <laughs> and we're also up on Reels. Threads. Sorry. We're also up on Threads. We're also up on Threads. Same handle as our Instagram, the Just for Kicks podcast. But we're going to be throwing a lot of exciting content up there. And keep an eye on Threads if you haven't already. I have a feeling you have. I'm Joey. I'm joined as always by Steve. Thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for being open-minded and welcoming the beautiful game into your heart. I know it's already pay repaid you dividends. It will give you so much more. This has been the Just for Kicks podcast. I love you. 